You are now listening to the November 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Joseph McDonald, here to continue sharing on a special privilege, right, and obligation that we have as Christians. This is Forgiveness. Last time, we shared a story Jesus told us involving a slave who owed 10,000 talents to his master. That story comes from Matthew chapter 18. 10,000 talents is an astronomical sum of money. It amounted to something a man would have to work for 160,000 years with no days off. That would be many, many lifetimes over. In the story, the debt the slave owed was forgiven by the master without any conditions put upon it. The master simply forgave the debt. The master forgave the debt not because the slave did something or made a promise to the master that made sense. He was forgiven simply because the master had compassion on him. Now then, what should we expect of this slave? After experiencing this amazing grace and mercy from his master, how should he live his life? For one, he should live his life being thankful and grateful. He should live his life reminding himself how blessed he is. He should praise the grace and mercy of his master and live a life filled with thankfulness and gratefulness. However, the story did not unfold that way. In fact, the opposite happened. It is described in Matthew 18, 28-30, which says, But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in the prison until he would pay back what was owed. In this passage, we see this slave who just experienced an amazing grace from his master bumping into his fellow slave who owed him some money. The sum was in the order of a hundred denarii, a minuscule amount compared to his 10,000 talents that he owed to his master. Okay, 100 denarii was the wage of 100 days of work. And this was not little money. It was more than three months' wage. However, compared to the debt he had been forgiven, it was an insignificant sum. In comparison, it was like a speck of dust or like a penny that we walk by on the street. Therefore, the slave that had just been forgiven the astronomical sum of money should have extended the grace he received to his fellow slave. He should have shown mercy on his fellow slave. That would have been a natural thing to do. Alas, this was not the case. The slave that had been forgiven the 10,000 talents by his master did not extend the grace that he experienced. He unmercifully jumped on his fellow slave, 
The scripture says he seized and choked his fellow slave. Choking would have involved strangling of the neck. His fellow slave must have been gasping for air, and the scripture says he fell to the ground. This merciless slave then proceeded to threaten the other slave to pay back the money or he would take his life. At that time, this other slave pleaded with him the same way that he pleaded with his master. Have patience with me and I will repay you. How do you think this slave felt when he heard the same plea he gave his master from this other slave that owed him money? Do you think he realized he was in the same predicament a few moments ago? We would have to wonder whether he was able to see himself in this other slave when he said, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Apparently, he did not care about his fellow slave's predicament, the same predicament he was in with his master. He showed no compassion to his fellow slave. He apparently had his fellow slave arrested and thrown into prison. He was determined to have his fellow slave imprisoned until the debt was fully repaid. How do you feel about this ungrateful slave? What do you think the master did when he heard about the incident involving this other slave? When the master heard about it, he summoned the ungrateful slave and confronted him about his behavior. Here is an excerpt from Matthew 18, 32 and 33. Then, summoning him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The master clearly told him he should have had mercy on his fellow slave. The master called the ungrateful slave a wicked slave and reprimanded him for his merciless treatment of his fellow slave. The slave that was forgiven 10,000 talents did not know about the value of grace. He didn't know he should have shared the grace he received with other people. To him, the master ordered a punishment. Here's what he declared in Matthew 18, verse 34. And his master, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. This punishment, in fact, is one that is much harsher than the ungrateful servant rendered his fellow slave. The ungrateful slave had his fellow slave thrown into prison. The master raised the level of punishment that involved torture. The ungrateful slave would face torturers, not just prison guards. Torturers, from the Greek word basanistes, refers to the people who elicit the truth by inflicting pain. The King James Bible translates this word to tormentors. We need to touch on the reason why the master handed over the ungrateful slave to the torturers. The word basanistes came from the word basanizo. This word means to torture, to be distressed, to be harassed. It is used to describe a person who suffers severely for diseases on his body or encounters a very harsh situation. For example, in Matthew 8 verse 6, we see a centurion coming to ask Jesus to heal his servant. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, terribly tormented. 
In a statement, the centurion used the word basanizo to describe the servant's severe suffering. This word is also used in Matthew 14, verse 24. After the miracle of five loaves and two fish, the disciples were going to the other side of the lake in a boat by themselves without Jesus. The scripture says, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The word basanizo is used here again to illustrate how the disciples were suffering in a troubled situation. Going back to the phrase, his master handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him, the biblical scholars explain further. First, we need to make it clear that once saved, a believer will not lose his or her grace. However, God may correct our wrongdoings by confronting us with harsh situations. God uses our troubled situations to teach us when we act like we do not understand the grace of salvation or do not share the grace with other people. Therefore, the ungrateful slave refers to the person who received unimaginable grace, like the grace of salvation. If the saved person does not understand the value of the grace he or she received and does not forgive a brother or sister, God would in fact admonish that saved person. The admonishment can come by way of allowing diseases or difficult situations. God wants to teach this person the meaning of grace and help this person correct his or her ways. Eventually, we would pray the saved person would learn and be reminded of the grace he or she received. What that means is that we would forgive our brothers and sisters because we come to understand the grace of having been forgiven of an astronomical debt that we owed our master, God, not because we fear being thrown over to the tormentors. The Bible reminds us that forgiving those that are indebted to us is a natural thing for us to do. We are all on the receiving end of God's grace. Our astronomical and ugly sins have been forgiven. Our sins are forgiven by the grace of God. Now, we should share our grace with other people by forgiving those that have sinned against us. Forgiveness. Join us next time as we talk more about this wonderful concept. Fount of love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain, now rushing o'er us like a and for all
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is family reunion. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We've been studying the life of Joseph. And we saw in Genesis chapter 45, where I'd like you to turn, we've seen the, the, really the climax of the book. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. His brothers are literally stunned. You're Joseph? They didn't recognize him. He had treated them a little differently because he had been testing them to see if they changed. And then finally, he says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. Freaked out as they were, Joseph says, come near to me. Don't be dismayed. 
basically, don't be afraid, come near to me. In other words, brothers, I want, I want to embrace you. I want you to come close to me. And uh, he says in chapter 45, verses 5 through 8, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for, and I underline this, God sent me, God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So he understands God sent me, God sent me, God made me. Joseph in his life has always been this this God-centered man who's always given God the glory for everything. You remember when he was going to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, he says, look, the interpretation is not mine. God gives the interpretation. And then he says, God will give Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream. He said, uh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then after his children was born, one of his children, the name meant that God comforted him. And he says, for God has made me fruitful. He was this, do you hear what I'm saying? He was this God-centered man. God did it. God did it. God did it. There was never a me. Here was this good-looking, talented, over-the-top the smart young guy. And it was God, 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 God. If anybody would have a reason to kind of boast, it might be him. But he doesn't. And that's, that would please God. One of the things that pleased God about Joseph's life God had prepared Joseph, and he realizes that in verses 9, 10, 11. He says, I mean, verse 8, he says, so it wasn't you who sent me, but God. He's made me, a number one, a father to Pharaoh, secondly, lord of all his house, and third, the ruler over all the land of Egypt. So God sent me to be a father to Pharaoh. How could this young guy, 30, 30 what, eight? Or so, how could he be a father to Pharaoh, who's older than him? Well, father can mean an advisor, and it is used that way um, several times in the Old Testament. So, God has made me, this young guy, an advisor to Pharaoh. And then he says, and, and Pharaoh has put me in charge of all his house. Pharaoh, just re, remember, as Potiphar put Joseph in charge of, of his whole house, and it says Potiphar didn't have a worry. Now, Joseph says there was, going to be, there was seven years of famine. He says two have happened now, but they're going to be five more years. So he came up with a plan, a very specific plan for his family. And that's given to us in, in verses 9 through 11. He says, they, look at verse 9, hurry up and go to my father. He, he says, speed is of necessity. Hurry up, go to my father and tell him to come back. Then he says in those verses, and you shall live in the land of Goshen. We'll talk more about that. And he says, I'll take care of you. So here's my plan. you got to Hurry. Okay, time's a wasting. You're not going to live much longer because the famine is getting much worse, not just here 
in Egypt, but in the land of Canaan, the lands surrounding Egypt. So hurry up and then come. You're going to live in the land of Goshen. It's a beautiful place. And I'll take care of all your needs. Then verses 14 and 15, look at this. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Uh, They hugged each other, but there's also this idea of the Middle Eastern kiss. You've seen that before. Let me me illustrate. No, I'm kidding. But you know, on on both sides, I'm not going to do it. But you know, have you seen that, right? You know what I'm saying. he, He kissed Benjamin first. He hugged him first. And this, you might say, was a hug, a kiss of reunification. They'd been separate 17 years, and now they're reunited. Benjamin, separate, reunification. Then he, he hugged and he kissed all his other brothers, those other 10, and it was a kiss of reconciliation. And now their relationship was not a relationship of slaves to a lord of ruler of all the land of Egypt, but it was his brothers. Amen. Now, going on in the story, Joseph, they recognize Joseph. He blesses them. They tell him, go to the land. Here's my plan for you. And so Pharaoh hears about this, and Pharaoh extends a royal invitation. You can read about that in verses 16 through 20. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, here is what I want you to do. Here's all the chariots and food and clothing and all of the supplies that it's going to take to, to get them back to Egypt and to bring them back quickly. And then he, he commanded Joseph to do that. And of course, that was all on Joseph's heart to do for his family. And um, I think about this. This was coming from Pharaoh himself, and he didn't even know Jacob or Jacob's family. He didn't even know those 11 brothers. He didn't know them at all. But for Joseph's sake, he gave the command. If they're your family, Joseph, I respect you so much. I hold you in such honor and high esteem that whatever you need for them, I give you. Not knowing anything about them. And you know, I I just saw a little aside here because I see Joseph often as a picture of Jesus. And here, his brothers are blessed because of him. It is because he is esteemed, because he has done the work that blessings have come upon his brethren. And I see that it's because of Jesus and his perfect work, because Jesus is highly esteemed before the Father, that all blessings have come to us. Can you say amen to that? We're accepted into God's house, God's kingdom, God's place because of what our Joseph has done. So the brothers, chapter 45, ends with the brothers returning to Jacob, their father, and um, uh, as uh, just before they leave, Joseph gives gifts to them, and he gave more, a lot more to Benjamin than he gave to the others. But remember, they had already been tested about that. Would they be jealous like they had been of him? 
toward Benjamin, if Benjamin was blessed more. And they, they weren't jealous this time. They went back and why, by the way, why did Joseph give so much more to Benjamin? Yeah, right. He was his natural brother. They were, uh, they were um, blood brothers together. They had a, a very close relationship, relationship. So he sent his brothers away. And in verse 24, this is fun. Look at verse 24. He sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> he knew them. And yes, you guys have changed a lot, but it's a long journey. You're going to be together really close. Don't quarrel on the way. Don't waste time disparaging each other and chewing each other out. This isn't a time for them to accuse or punish anyone. Come on. Treat each other with love and grace just like I've treated you. Hello. God's saying, look, I've treated you with such love. I've treated, I've accepted you. I've treated you with, some gra- with so much grace. Now, share it with others. Be nice to your other brethren, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see the application here? As we're on our way to the promised land, as we're on our way to heaven, and we're the children of God. God says, look how good and gracious I've been, forgiving I've been to you. Now, don't chew each other out. Don't get on each other's cases. Be loving and gracious and kind and forgiving to one another. Again, make sure your relationships are right and stay right. Now, one commentator offers a completely different take on this passage. And frankly, I hadn't thought about it at all, but here's, here's a completely different take on this. He, the word, uh, he says in Hebrew for to argue or be angry means to shake, and it is used throughout the Old Testament scripture to mean to fear, to fear. And so one take on this verse could really be, he says, and do not fear along the journey. Whoa, that's a completely different thought, isn't it? Do not fear. Upon Probably both are implied. Hey, don't get on each other's cases, and don't be afraid. It's a long journey. But I said I'd take care of you. I'll, I'll make sure you're okay. When Jacob gets the news that Joseph is alive, he was overcome with joy. It had been 17 years since Joseph had disappeared. And he was just over joy. Can you imagine, you know, seeing you thought your son was dead. You thought your daughter was dead. And and 17 years later, you hear they're alive. I I can hardly imagine. But despite the fact that his family was going to die of starvation, Joseph was, Jacob was reluctant to go to Egypt. And that's what we see in the first seven verses of chapter 46. Why would he be reluctant to go to Egypt? Joseph is inviting him. This is where they're, they're going to be saved, it looks like. This is where they'll be sheltered during five more years of famine. Uh, they've been getting their food from Egypt anyway. Why would you be 
Be cautious or leery about going to Egypt, Jacob. Well, I think for several reasons. The first is that his grandfather and his father had had experiences with Egypt. Abraham, his grandpa, had gone to Egypt because of a famine. And as a result, God says, you've gone because you don't have faith in me taking care of you here in the promised land. You leaving, you passing the border of the promised land to go into Egypt has shown me your unbelief. That was a lesson Abraham learned, and it was a lesson that uh, Jacob also had learned. I think another reason is because um, Isaac, uh, Jacob's father, had wanted to go to Egypt for the similar reason, because of a famine, And in Genesis chapter 26, God forbade him to go. In Genesis chapter 26, 1 through 4, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I tell you. So sojourn in this land, the promised land. There's a famine. God says, do not leave. Specifically, clearly, do not go to Egypt. So Jacob must be thinking, well, uh, I have the invites, but I'm reluctant because Abraham was in unbelief when he went. Will, will, Will it show that I'm not trusting the Lord? I don't want, I don't, do I, am I trusting? Am I not trusting? You ever have that problem? Is this, should I, should I, what, what is this showing? Uh, uh, my dad was told not to go into Egypt. He always told me that. So now I'm, I'm invited to go to Egypt. What do I do? And God in his grace spoke to him in a dream. Look at chapter 46, 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Verse 3, now listen. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God says, do not be afraid, because I am. I will, I will, I will. It's not up to you. I will. Don't be afraid. You know, if I realized God is with me, I would go any place when God was directing me, wouldn't you? I mean, it's like, what, I, I shall not fear. What can mortal man do to me? I'm, I'm in the will of God. And God says, don't worry. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Don't worry. Jesus said, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, so God gave Joseph this confirmation that it was okay to move away from the land the Lord promised his grandfather. But he also told him that it would be a temporary, a temporary journey. Uh, It would just be a temporary absence from the promised land. They would be coming back. Nearly 40 years before God had spoken to him through a dream, and now God says it again. I want you to note God says, do not fear. You might want to underline that. Probably one of the most common, uh, the most frequent thing God says to us in the Old Testament is do not fear or do not be afraid. Don't fear, don't be afraid. Jacob's life had been punctuated by fear. I think it's interesting that God spoke to him at his weakest point. He'd grown up with fear. It was fear of his brother Esau. How many of you can remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Can can any of you guys? Okay, not everybody. So let me tell you that uh, these were two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Really, Esau was the oldest. It should be Esau and Jacob. But Jacob's mom wanted Jacob to be given the blessing of the firstborn. And if you had the blessing of the firstborn, you would have double the inheritance. You would lead the nation, lead the tribe. And she wanted that for her uh, son, not for uh, her, her, uh, her, Jacob's, I mean, um, Abraham's other wife's son. So Abraham was nearly blind, and she says, look, I want you to fool, put on this ruse. I want you to fool your dad. And Esau was a hairy guy, I guess really hairy, because uh, he, she had him put on goat skin on his forearms so that when Abraham touched him, he would <laughs> think it was Esau's arms. Had him put on Esau's clothes so he smelled like uh, the outdoors, and then had uh, Jacob uh, make one of his favorite dinners, one of his favorite soups. So doing all of that, he goes before Jacob. Jacob is at first a little suspicious, but then he's convinced. And so he gives the blessing of the firstborn upon Jacob. Later, Esau shows up. I mean, it's just like he leaves and then Esau comes and he says, Dad, will you now bless me? And he says, what? I just blessed you. He says, no, I'm here. And then they, it, they realize it was Jacob, that trickster. That's what he was known for. He came in and he fooled me. Esau, he says, Dad, give me another blessing. Give me. He says, I have no other blessing to give. Jacob has it. Well, Esau is Hot in Genesis chapter 27. If you want to look there, hold your place where you are. Look at Genesis chapter 27. Esau, I mean, I you can hardly, uh, you can hardly, you can see how his anger is is justified in a way. Look at chapter 27, verses 41 through 45. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, 
The days of my mourning for my father are approaching. In other words, dad is going to die really quickly. And after dad is dead, then I will what? Kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son. I'm sorry, Jacob was, was um, and Esau were uh, brothers. He wasn't the brother of somebody else. Uh, I misspoke. So she sent and she called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. You know, it's interesting. When, when you're afraid, you run a lot, don't you? You're always running from something. It's either in your mind you're running from something, or literally, in this case, he is running away. And stay with him a while, verse 44, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Oh, yeah, you think that's going to happen? The rest of Esau's life, he's losing things. He's missed out of things because of what stinking Jacob had done to him. That's what he was thinking. And then she says, then I'll send you a message, and, and you can come home. Chapter 32, verse 11, he, his fears continued long after that. 32, verse 11. He says, oh, God of my father, Abraham and Isaac and my father, Jacob. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. He says, I am still afraid that Jake Esau is going to come. He's going to kill me and kill my whole family. That's a long, long time to live in fear. I'm going to say something which is the obvious, but a lot of people are just living in fear all the time. And let me say, there's always something to be afraid of, right? Whatever it is, is, uh, is that going to come around and... Uh, you're afraid that uh, somebody, you know, your fear will come true. So God reassures Jacob by specifically speaking to his weakness, going back to chapter 46. And he says to him, verse 2, verse 3, do not be afraid. God assured Jacob it was his will to take his family, and go to Egypt. Jacob didn't know what God was doing. He didn't know what the future would hold. So easy for us to look at these people and to even, well, what were you so afraid of? Well, you know, that was stupid. You know, we think of, of but what if God was reading, what if our narrative was written in this book? People go, I can't believe she did this. Why did he do that? Look at what God was planning. Look, okay. He didn't know what the future held. He didn't know what God would do. And as God guides and directs our lives, we don't, we don't know what he's going to do either. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Amen. Now, all of this was God carrying out his providential plan. I see, and you see the pieces all coming together. 
everything's clicking together. It's like, oh man, oh man, this piece, this piece, that, that empty piece is, oh, everything's beginning to make sense now. God had predicted to Abraham that the people would leave the land of Egypt. In Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants theirs, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And that was all a prediction, a prophecy about the children of Israel going to Egypt, being there for 400 years, and then being delivered and coming out with a big haul with great possessions. And that's what the book of Exodus is about, right? God knew in Jacob's life in this instance that it would take something like a life-threatening famine for him to begin to move forward and then God could reveal to him the next step, not the whole plan at all. But the next step, you know, all God wants to do in our lives is just say, here's the next step. He shakes us up. What's the famine in your life? What is like making you okay? I got to move on. I hate not knowing what to do. I like being comfortable. How about you? I don't like not knowing what's going on at all. I don't like that. And it takes a lot for God to say, move on. I don't know what the famine in your life is, but God is shaking things up so that we'll move ahead and just take the next step. And then God will give you what his plan is for the next step and the next step. So the entire chapter 46 is really about the entire family hopping into wagons and moving to Egypt. And they had a family reunion. Finally. The family is back together again. And the family, I would say, is basically in a healthy place. They're not as dysfunctional as they were 17 years before. That's for sure. Amen? Now, a list of the names of the family, including sons and grandsons, is given in verse 10. Moses, Moses is writing the book of Genesis. In verse 10, Moses gives us some additional details about one of Simeon's marriages. He had two wives. And his sons are named. Look at verse 10. You see verse 10? His sons, Yemuel, Yamin, Okad, Yachin, Tzohar, and Shaul, whose mother was what? A Canaanite woman. You see that? His mother was a Canaanite woman. Very, very important to know, to understand. Reference to Simeon's marriage is made that he married a Canaanite. You know, the choice, the choice of a spouse will make or break your life. You know that. Some of you have gone through divorce. You've gone through separation. Some of you are going through that right now. It stinks. Marriage matters. Simeon married a Canaanite woman. So one of the reasons why God wants Jacob and his family out of the land of Canaan right now is because he does not want them intermarrying. 
He wants to keep the Jews together separate because, look, the Messiah is going to be a Jew. The people have to be the chosen people. The promise to Abraham is, I will make uh, of you a great nation. I will give my land to you. The promises are given to Abraham, a Jew, not to Gentiles. And so God places them in the land of Goshen. I'll tell you a little more about that. He places them in the land of Goshen so that they will be separate from others. You say, well, wait a minute. How can you be? They're going to Egypt. How can they be separate from the Egyptians? Well, let me say this. The Egyptians despised shepherds. They despised that whole profession. Generally, shepherds were Semites. You've heard of anti-Semitism. They were Semites. They were from Canaan. They hated them. They, they wouldn't eat. Some say they were vegetarians. I don't know that that is actually true, but they would not eat sheep. They hated mutton. And of course, that was good. I hate mutton. One time, the first time I ever had Lamb was mutton. It tasted like a wet wool, the smell of a wet wool sweater. <laughs> I thought that's why they have mint jelly with it. <laughs> it's disgusting. It was absolutely terrible. Fortunately, there was a dog right there. And when people, <laughs> I cut it, and when they weren't looking at me, I threw it to the dog. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I could not choke that down. Horrible. So I understand. Uh, but they, they loathed shepherds. And so shepherds were always separate from the Egyptians. God knew that. He knew that, okay, a place where they will be apart from other people will be there. And where am I going to put them? I'm going to give them the best piece of Egypt, the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen, Psalms tell us, was fertile. The land of Goshen's number says, uh, was a place where there was a lot of fish. They could grow stuff. They could grow leeks and onion and garlic, and they'd have meat. It was a, it was a beautiful place, which kind of also gives us a little background that when the children of Israel were hardly out of the land of Egypt, just a few weeks, and God is giving them manna to eat because they ran out of food, and God says, I'm going to give you manna every single day, and he was faithfully doing that. And after a while, they were so sick of eating manna that they complained, and they said, we, we miss the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. I totally can understand that. How about you guys? I love those things. And we loathe this miserable food. We hate the man. We are so sick of eating the same thing. I don't know. How would they prepare it differently? They didn't have leeks, onions, garlic. What is there out there in the desert to prepare your food with? They were craving what they had because it was amazing. There, that country was fertile. So they're, they're given, Pharaoh says, I'm going to give you the best land of all Egypt. Isn't that crazy? God brings them now, puts them in a strange place, but then he says, here's my blessing on you. And they're kept separate 
all by themselves to Jews, stay with Jews as is God's plan to keep them together as a nation, as a people rather than a nation yet. And the Egyptians are separate. This is all of God's amazing. Ah, it blows me away, his plan. How about you guys? It's just like, oh, my land. So um, all, the background to this was uh, Joseph got his brothers together, and he says, well, yeah, Pharaoh's, yes, they're coming back into the land. He says, Pharaoh's going to ask you some questions. Pharaoh's going to ask you what you do, and, and tell him that you're Semites, basically, and that you're shepherds, and you're taking care of sheep. Make sure you say this to him. I'm paraphrasing. And sure enough, he wanted to prepare them for what they really needed to say. He wasn't asking them to lie. He just said, these are the bullet points that you have to bring up. So Pharaoh asked them, well, what do you do? And they said, well, our father and we were shepherds. We take care of sheep and cattle. And we would love them in a place where we can just do that. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh, see, that's what Pharaoh needed to be able to make that decision to keep them separate from the, the, the people. Now, this all was arranged providentially. This was all part of God's providential plan. God doesn't always just work, you know, religiously. He works politically. There's this providence of God going on here. You see this Pharaoh giving them the land of Egypt, of Goshen happened during the 15th dynasty of Egypt when the Hyksos ruled over lower and middle Egypt. This was the first time that Egypt had been ruled by foreigners. And the foreigners that had conquered Egypt and now became the pharaohs, they were Semites. Which means, put it together, because they, had, they, they practiced uh, customs of Canaan, the Canaanites, as well as Egyptian customs, which means that this was basically about the only time that other Semites, God's people, would be just invited. Come on in the land. The later pharaohs, 400 years later, the, uh, the, those rulers, the Semite rulers, had been kicked out. They had been overcome, and now Egyptians were ruling. And that's Genesis, I mean, Exodus chapter 1, where it says, Pharaoh saw the people of Israel in the land of Goshen, how they were prospering. And there's so many of them. He says, there are too many. They could rise up and conquer Egypt. Again, the Semites could overtake Egypt again, is what he's afraid of. So he says, we need to make them slaves, and we got to make sure they stop this population explosion. We want you to kill every male baby that is born. See? See how it's all said? Are you like wow right now? I'm wow. Oh, I am wow, but I'm, I'm, I think that's why they call me that, because I'm wowing all the time.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Today, we'll finally look into Genesis chapter 2 where Isaac is offered as a sacrifice. I'm sure most everyone knows about Genesis chapter 22 through sermons and Bible studies. Abraham's demonstration of faith and obedience by his willingness to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering is a common topic. Along with this incident, Abraham's life nears the end. Afterward, Abraham sees the death of Sarah and Isaac's wedding. Then Abraham's life ends. God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and he molded him into the Abraham that we now see in Genesis chapter 22. That was God's purpose. God wanted us to realize his hand in molding Abraham. A weak human named Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which was the center of idol worship. He was timid enough to deceive others by saying his wife was his sister for his own protection. When she was taken, Abraham was too timid to try to get her back. Such a person has now become someone who obeys God's word through faith. That is the story of Genesis chapter 22. Abraham set the course of his life by faith, setting an example for us to follow. Let's look into the story in detail. Here is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Chapter 22 starts by saying some time later. What happened before this? It could be when Abraham made a peace treaty with Abimelech. But if we look at this in entirety, it would be better to think of everything that happened in his life until now. Abraham had demonstrated his faith by following God's leading. After experiencing God through everything that had happened, God is trying to do something dramatic. What is it? God is trying to test Abraham. God is trying to see his faith. God is checking the character of Abraham's faith. If we look at chapter 22 verse 2 in the Hebrew Bible, the order goes like this. Take him your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac. The Jewish rabbis explained that God and Abraham had this kind of conversation. God said, Abraham, take your son. Then Abraham said, my son? Which son? God said, your only son. Then Abraham said, my only son? I have two sons. 
God said, the son whom you love. The reason why I'm telling you this is to confirm who Isaac is. In God's eyes, Isaac is Abraham's only son whom he loves. Only Isaac is named as the son. He is the promised son and not the son of the flesh. This is the evidence that can lead those who are foreign to the faith to become God's children. We are children born of the flesh, but we became God's children by His promise and grace through faith. God tells Abraham to take Isaac, the promised son, to the land of Moriah. Traditionally, the Jews say the mountain in Moriah is later called Mount Zion. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite and the place provided by David. The name of Mount Moriah appears here. This place is known as the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac as a burnt offering. Let's think about what happened next. God is telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the precious only child whom Abraham loves, as a burnt offering. A burnt offering is when someone kills an animal and removes the skin. The hair is cut and the internal organs are removed, cleaned, and burned. It's very gruesome. God told Abraham to do this gruesome act to his own son. We commonly think that God is testing whether or not Abraham has the faith to give his beloved son as a burnt offering. Therefore, we interpret the incident of the burnt offering on Mount Moriah as the priority of love. It's the priority of whether we have something we love more than God. Of course this is true. However, if we only focus on the priority of love with the incident of the burnt offering, then there are many times when we miss the essence of what the Bible is saying. Let's think for a moment. We refer to this incident as the testing of Abraham. Verse 1 also says God tested Abraham. What was God testing? He was testing Abraham's faith. God may have tested who Abraham loves more. However, the test mentioned here is a test of faith towards the word. How can we know this? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. It says because Abraham believed that it is through Isaac that his offspring will be reckoned, he reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, God already said that it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Therefore, even if Abraham killed his son and cut him into parts and burned his skin and organs, he had amazing faith that God will fulfill his promise to make his offspring come from Isaac. Without this faith, he wouldn't have been able to give his son as a burnt offering. 
Abraham had to have this level of faith to carry out God's command. God was testing whether or not Abraham believed his promised word, even though it seemed impossible. It was a test of whether Abraham could show, through action, that he believed God's word will be fulfilled. This is incredible faith. It's an important test of whether or not Abraham could give his son as a burnt offering because of God's word. It is amazing faith. However, God's test is more than that. Even though Abraham would have had to remove Isaac's skin and set him on fire, it is because of the promise of God that his offspring would come from Isaac that Abraham would do as God has said. Even though Abraham would have had to remove Isaac's skin and set him on fire, it is because of the promise of God that his offspring would come from Isaac that Abraham would do as God commanded, even though he didn't know how God would bring Isaac back from the dead. Therefore, Abraham was able to give Isaac as a burnt offering. How did such faith happen? Did it just happen one day? Let's say Abraham went to the land God told him to go, and as soon as he went there, Sarah got pregnant and had a child. After they raised him, God said, Abraham, sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. Would Abraham have said yes and obeyed? That probably wouldn't have happened. However, now as Abraham looked back upon his life, he sees everything God has said was fulfilled. After experiencing God through all the years, Abraham believed that God could do anything. Abraham saw God's hand in all the small and big things in his life and therefore now has extraordinary faith in God. That is why experience is important in faith. Experience solidifies faith. I hope our listeners will truly experience the Lord every day. I'm not talking about a splendid miracle. When we read the Word and the Word actually happens in our lives and we act upon the Word, the promise according to the Word is fulfilled. I hope we can experience more of this. This will make our faith more solid and we will trust God even more. After hearing God's Word, Verse 3 says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Then it says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. The distance from Beersheba to Moriah is about 50 to 60 miles. It's about a three-day journey. We often wonder what Abraham was thinking during the three-day journey. Some say he probably looked sad. Some say he was probably resentful and said, God, why are you giving me this trial? Some even say Abraham was sobbing while traveling. However, after learning about this story today, I think Abraham traveled with expectation. Especially when we think about the word from the book of Hebrews, I think Abraham might have had an amazing expectation towards God. Abraham might have thought, How will God save this child and keep his promise? I'm sure God will do an amazing work again. This is my own personal thought. When Isaac asked Abraham, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Without hesitation, Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. One day in the future, we can go to heaven and ask Abraham how he felt as he was traveling for three days. As we end this session, let's clearly think about one thing. As Abraham experienced God throughout his life, he was once weak and timid and at times violated God's word. But eventually, through God's hand molding him, Abraham became the father of bold faith. Next time, we'll look into detail of how the burnt offering was given and think about how we give worship. We'll end God of Abraham here. Until next time, I hope you could carefully read Genesis chapter 22 and consider Abraham's feelings. I'll see you next time. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.